Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast for Hope City Church in Riverside, California. For more info about Hope City Church, visit www.hopecityriverside.org. So now, this book comes to a dramatic finish in Jonah chapter 4. Jonah chapter 4, we're going to read verses 1 through 11. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. What displeased him? Let me just read the verse before that, just to give you context. This is chapter 3, verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. God did not destroy Nineveh because they repented. And now verse 1, verse 4, chapter 4, verse 1. But it displeased Noah, Jonah exceedingly. I can't talk tonight. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry, and he prayed to the Lord, and he said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what should become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah so that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it's better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? And that's it. That's the end of the book. It's pretty crazy. It's pretty crazy. Let's jump into this, okay? Remember, this book of prophecy is unique for a couple reasons, okay? Number one, it's unique because most prophecies, especially in the Old Testament, major and minor prophets are directed at the Hebrew people. That is, the, the people of God, God's chosen people that we see in the Old Testament, the people that God had chosen and drawn to himself to make a people for himself, okay? To bless so that in them the world would be blessed, okay? So most prophecies are written to either the northern or the southern kingdom of Israel. This shows us God's interaction with a non-Jewish, Gentile, unbelieving people in Nineveh, okay? The Assyrians. They were, they were not, this was not a prophet sent to speak a word to God's people and call them back to faithfulness. This was a prophet sent to speak God's word to a non-Jewish people. It's very important to see that God is a God of all nations. God is a God of all peoples. He's not just a God of people who play Christian. He's not just a God of people who find themselves currently, presently, more obedient than they were a couple years ago. 
who play, who attend church and, and serve and tithe and all, do all the good stuff, who check all the right boxes. God is a God of all people everywhere. He's a God that created all of them, uh, whose heart longs passionately for them. The Muslim in Iran right now, God is crazy about him. Crazy about him. Created him in his image and likeness. Longs to pour out his mercy and grace on him. Paul the Apostle was like, was like Osama bin Laden. He was a terrorist persecuting Christians. And God saw fit to save him radically. This is the heart of our God. We need to see that. So we see that while other prophecies, other prophetic books are directed at, at the Jewish people, this is directed at a Gentile, unbelieving people. And secondly, and I think very, very importantly, while other prophecies deal primarily with the prophecy itself or with the people being prophesied to, this one focuses primarily on the prophet. We've talked about this before, but the book of Jonah is so much concerned about Jonah and not so much about what Jonah was saying to other people. Now we have that. We have Jonah preaching a message to the Ninevites and their repentance. That's beautiful in chapter 3 for us. But chapters 1, 2, and 4, it's like God dealing with Jonah. And the book ends with God dealing with Jonah. It's not primarily about a book about God dealing with the Ninevites. I think it's primarily a book about God dealing with his prophet. The scholar George Williams said this, This book is unique in that it's more concerned with the prophet himself than with his prophecy. The condition of his soul and God's loving discipline of him should instruct and humble the reader. That is, I should read the book of Jonah and I should be instructed and humbled when I see God dealing with one of his own children. So, as we said, chapters 1 and 2 was focused on Jonah's disobedience, his prayer from the belly of the fish. In chapter 3, we took a quick look at Nineveh's repentance and God's mercy. And in this final chapter, we're right back to Jonah. And I think there's one grand overarching theme of this final chapter. And it would be, in my opinion, compassion. That is, God's compassion for even the most sinful, broken people. And whether or not we are going to share that compassion. So let's read verses 1 through 3 again. It displeased Jonah exceedingly. What displeased Jonah exceedingly? The grace that God had shown, the compassion that God had shown to the Ninevites. Have you ever been angry when God blessed or forgave somebody else? Have you ever been angry at just the thought that somebody else could walk in the mercy and grace of God? I know none of you have because you are all fantastic holy saints, okay? But I unfortunately have had these moments in my life where specifically when people have wounded me or hurt me or slandered me or said all kinds of, done evil things to me, to see them walking blissfully in the grace of God, I go, God, I just sometimes I feel like David in the, in the Psalms where he goes, God, send fire or God, strike him. Let them fall into the pit that they dug for me. Yeah. Well, I've done it. I feel like that sometimes. God has just shown a great mercy and compassion toward Nineveh, and Jonah is 
furious. And he prayed to the Lord, verse 2, and said, Oh, Lord, isn't this what I said while I was in my country? Is this what I said when you first told me to go to them? Why did Jonah not go to Nineveh right away? Why did he run? Why did he try to get away from this assignment? He says, this is why I ran. He tells us right here, this is exactly why I ran. This is what I said when I was in my country. I knew you were going to do this, God. I just, I just knew you were going to do this. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, Lord, please just kill me. For it's better for me to die than to live. Jonah's furious that God has poured out his grace on others. Now listen, before we just beat Jonah up and go, oh, I would never be like Jonah. Remember, we talked about this back in week one and maybe week two. Remember how horribly barbaric these people were, okay? This was a people that would take people's tongues out, drive a stake through them into the ground. They would bury people alive. They would, they would do all kinds of horrible things, display their entrails all over the place. Whole villages would commit mass suicide when they heard that the Assyrians were coming. And Nineveh is the capital city of Assyria. This is a brutal and barbaric people, and no doubt Jonah had been victim. And Jonah, Jonah's people had been victim of the Assyrians Time and time again. Remember, these are the people Jonah has the most good reason to hate. That's so important that we understand who these people are to Jonah. These are not a people that Jonah wants to see receive grace. He wants to see them receive judgment. He wants to see them receive condemnation. And God has to deal with his heart. How quickly Jonah had forgotten God's grace toward him. Remember, Jonah was thrilled that God had given him a second chance. I mean, he had to have been. He was about to die. And he cries out to God, and God sends his fish. And he says, Lord, I was down in the depths, and you saved me. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And now he's furious about God's grace because it's not being poured out on him but on his enemy. We absolutely love grace when it's coming our way. We just want to we just want to soak in it. I just want to sit and God just pour out your buckets of grace on me just oh thank you Lord I'm alive again it's amazing. What hope is restored when God pours out his grace and his mercy? And sometimes we just don't share the same excitement when we see the grace of God poured out on those people or on that person. I don't know who that is for you. And sometimes we have good reason to be angry. What I mean by that is sometimes we have actually been violated. Let me just say this. So many times, offense is taken uh, and not given. What I mean by that is, not, so much offense that I've seen, a lot of the offense that I've ever mediated, just being a church leader, when this person's offended with this person and there's drama, I'm just going to be honest. I'm just going to say probably 75, I'm conservative, conservative. Probably 75% of it is a perceived offense. And that, I'm just being conservative. So-and-so did this, and they meant it this way. 
And, they, and it's like, now we're judging people's heart motives. And did you go to them and did you talk? No, it's like so a perceived offense. But listen, sometimes there's legitimate offense. No doubt Jonah had been a legitimate victim of these people. So I don't want to make light of, I'm not saying that grace means you go, ah, eh, what you did was no big deal. That's not what I'm saying. God wasn't saying that. God said their wickedness has come up before me. God cared very much about the evil that they were doing. It's just that he wanted them to repent of their evil, not experience the wrath of God over their evil. Do you see the difference? It's not saying your evil is okay. It's saying God's heart in drawing people is repentance for them, not destruction. And Jonah had lost that. Jonah had reached a spot where he just wanted to see destruction. He just wanted to see judgment. So we love this grace coming our way, but we don't always celebrate it when others receive it. It reminds me of a modern parable I heard. It says, it's just a modern parable. It's not a Bible parable. It's just a modern parable that somebody said, uh, okay, it's like a story of like an angel that shows up to a guy and he says, uh, I'm going to offer to give you anything that you ask for. Whatever you ask for, I'm just going to give it to you. And the guy's like, amazing, like no strings attached. Well, here's the, here's the deal. Whatever you ask for, I'm going to give double to your neighbor. And the man said, then take one of my eyes. I'll let that sit on its own without some commentary. No, I won't. Is that us? Is that, is that ever us? And, and the reality is sometimes it is. Sometimes, I, listen, this is here because I can relate to Jonah. Unfortunately, like I thought I was good. And like God, even this week, just using this to just chip away at my hard heart. Just to chip away in those areas where I had just resigned and just said, God, you just... Do what you need to do. Where my heart wasn't as tender and sensitive as it used to be. And I, and I would say, for good reason, you know? I'd say, God, you know, you, you see, you know what's happening. And God goes, yeah, I know and I see what's happening. And I want you to have a radically gracious and compassionate heart. Jonah would rather die than see others receive the same grace he's received. That's heavy. I find that the people who are the most judgmental towards others are often those who have lost touch with their own desperate need for grace. And I would say that it's true for me. When I find myself the most judgmental in a season where I'm, where I'm being judgmental and critical and, and, and just not as compassionate towards others as I need to be. It's because in some way I have let myself lose sight of the fact that I am a sinner saved by the glorious grace of God that I deserve nothing. That it was just his good grace and favor that stepped in, and though I didn't deserve it, poured out mercy. That while we were yet sinners, God demonstrated his love, and Christ died for us. Not after we cleaned ourselves up, not after we apologized to him for being rebellious sinners. It says while we were yet sinners, Christ demonstrated his love by dying for us. 
And so that just did away with my little excuse, like, well, if they'll apologize, I'll show grace. God's like, find me that in the Bible. The reality is, and this is the thing that's been confronting me, it's easier to judge other people's sin than to look at the sin in my own heart. It just is. It's always easier to do this and spot the sin in somebody else than it is to look at the sin in my own heart. And I would say this, judgmental people, so this idea of specks and planks, you know, in the scripture it talks about this. If you don't know, let me explain it to you. So it says, it says who are you to judge your neighbor? It says, you, you tell your neighbor, like, get the speck out of your eye. And it says, you've got a plank sticking out of your own. Like, imagine a beam of wood sticking out of your eye, and you walk up to your neighbor and go, hey, you got a little speck of wood in there. You better deal with that. That's the picture the Bible gives, okay? And, and I think judgmental people often see other sins, other people's sins as planks and their own sins as specks. Christians see their sins as planks and other people's sins as specks. Maybe that's an overgeneralization, but I think it's safe to say that if I'm seeing my own sin as a speck and other people's sins as planks, I'm in a bad spot. And I know this is so cliche, but I just really believe it's true. Forgiven people forgive people. So when I understand the, the radical forgiveness that God has bestowed upon me, then I give radical forgiveness to others. That's it. And if I don't give radical forgiveness to others, then maybe I haven't fully comprehended the radical forgiveness that Christ has given to me and is currently giving to me. Those who know much, those who understand how much grace that they've received show the most grace toward other people. That's just true. And so God begins to deal with Jonah. He begins to do a work in him. And we see this happen so often. So many times when God sends you on any kind of mission, uh, you know, locally or abroad or any kind of assignment, any kind of gospel ministry. It's not just so he can do a work through you, but that so he can do a work in you. Isn't that so true? Haven't you found that to be true? You ever gone to serve and bless other people and you come back going like, oh my gosh, like what God did in me, like I was the one that needed work done in me. I remember, I, I know I've, I use this example all the time, but I remember my first mission trip, we went to the Amazon, and I, I remember, it was arrogant, but I remember, and it, I didn't mean it in a bad way, but I remember before we left for that trip, I thought, man, oh, it's, I was so excited to go and be a blessing to those people, to minister to them, because they don't have very much, and just go, and like, we're going to just go serve, and we're just going to go be servants, and we're just going to go bless them and minister to them, and I remember flying home, praying to God that, that our team had had half the impact on those pe precious people that they had had on us. I remember flying home going, this trip was not about what, I'm, what God was going to do through me to other people. For, for me, at least, it was so much about what God did in me on that trip. And that's what we see here with Jonah. God sends Jonah because God needs to deal with Jonah. Not because Jonah was so awesome sauce that God had to use him to deal with the Ninevites. Historically speaking, the Ninevites ended up in destruction generations later. 
God sent Jonah because God needed to do a work in Jonah. And so maybe serving in some way is not just about, it is what, what God wants to do through you. Listen, finding a place to serve is so important. Because yes, God wants to do a work through you, but he also wants to do a work in you that cannot happen until you're on mission. It's huge. Verse 4 says this. I got I to gotta go quicker. Verse 4. <clears throat> And the Lord said, are you, do you do well to be angry? He says, are you right? Is it even right for you to be angry? Jonah doesn't answer him the first time. He answers him the second time. He goes, yeah, it's right for you to be angry, angry enough to die. But God's pointing out that Jonah is dealing with an unrighteous anger. <clears throat> I, I'm a firm believer that there actually is such a thing as righteous anger. I think Scripture says, be angry and do not sin. I think there's an, ang I think there's an anger that is not sinful. And I think actually without that, we would never deal with things like human trafficking. If you're not angry about people being sold into slavery, you're never going to do something about it. So I think anger is a God-given emotion. We can be angry in the right way. God's dealing with Jonah saying, you are angry in an unrighteous way. Even though you feel like you have good reason, it's wrong for you to be angry. That's what God is saying to Jonah. And then look at this. 5, 5 through 11. Well, we read it. It says, Jonah went out of the city, sat east of the city, and made a booth for himself there. He sat under the shade till he should see what would become of the city. The Lord God appointed a plant, made it come up over Jonah, that it might be shade over his head to save him from the discomfort. He appointed a plant. Does that sound like familiar language? He appointed a fish. He appointed a plant. Made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. God is active. This idea of a clockmaker God who just wound the universe up and lets it just fend for itself, it's, you can't find support for that in the scriptures. This is a God who is intimately involved and active in our lives. Amen. Sovereignly working all things for his glory. He appointed, he says he hurled the storm. He appointed the fish. He appointed a plant. He appointed a worm. He appointed a scorching east wind. We see the power of God. Yeah. Verse 9. God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yep. It is good for me to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. God clearly cares very deeply for these people he created in his own image even though they were barbaric and wickedly sinful. He had compassion on them. He said they don't know their right hand from their left. Makes me remember Jesus' prayer on the cross. First thing he says, first words he breathes after being beaten and having his beard ripped out and spit on and pierced. Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. I'm like, Jesus, they know exactly what they're doing. 
They, know they knew that they were driving a stake through your arms and through your feet. They knew that they were crucifying a man on trumped-up charges. They knew what they were doing. He says, they had no idea. My mom was talking to me about this. They had no idea the ripple effect and the ramifications throughout all time what they were doing. They had no idea the depth of consequence. They were ignorant to the things of God in this. He says, these Ninevites, listen, I go, the Ninevites knew what they were doing. They knew they were a brutal people. They knew they were barbaric. They knew that what they did was awful. They knew enough to repent of it when God called them on it. They said, let us turn from our wicked ways. They knew it was wicked. God says, they don't know their right hand from their left. They, they don't really know. They don't really get it. And I am a God of great compassion. Scripture reminds us that we have a high priest who sympathizes with our weaknesses. Psalm 103 tells us that God knows our frame and he understands that we are just dust. He understood the weaknesses of the Ninevites and he, he knew their frame. He knew their temptation to sin. Just like he knows mine. And every wickedness and atrocity that I see and point at in the world, God says, the potential for that is resident in your own hearts. You just sin in different ways. This is a truly loving and gracious God. But Jonah, who's supposed to be a man of God, does not share the heart of God. And so God deals with him. Again, verse 10 and 11. This is how the book ends. Says you pity a plant. You you have pity for a plant. You have more feeling for that plant than that city filled with people. A plant that you didn't labor for, you didn't make it grow, it came to being in a night and it perished in a night. Should I not have pity on the people that I created in my own image and likeness? All these people who don't know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. And he leaves it. That's it. Book closed. End of, end of the book. That's how it ends. Like, I, I want to know what happens next. Like, I want to know how Jonah responded, but it doesn't tell me that. It ends with this crazy cliffhanger. God's like, do you do well to be angry? You have more pity on that plant than you do on these people. Should I not have pity on them? That's it. Drop the mic, leave the stage. Like, that's it. It's a question left hanging in the air that we don't have an answer for. Is Jonah going to find compassion in his heart for people that God created? It doesn't answer that. It reminds me of another story told by Jesus. It reminds me of a story that we often call the story of the prodigal son. Although I don't think the story is about the prodigal son. I don't even think the story is about the older brother. I think the story is about the father. And I wish I had a, maybe we'll just teach on this one day. I've taught on this before, but I'll do a whole sermon on this. But let me just narrate this for you real quick. A father has two sons. 
One, ask for his inheritance now. He's basically saying, Dad, I wish you were dead now so I could get my part of your inheritance. The father says, okay, splits the inheritance, gives it to him. The son goes off, and he wastes it. Prodigal is just wasteful. That's what it means. The wasteful son. Just spending everywhere. We learn from just sinful things, pursuits. He's getting wasted. He's, he's finding prostitutes. He's doing his thing. He ends up just spending everything. Like every kind of think, whatever you would think of in modern terms being the most like debauchery, the most horrific sin and vile, like I'm just living in the world. This, this, this son goes and does it all. And then he wastes it, and he runs out of money. He wastes the inheritance and this sinful living. And he finds himself working for this, like, eating this, like, this pig farmer or something like that. And he's, like, eating the food that's given to the pigs. He's eating from the pods there and sleeping with them. And he goes, this is ridiculous. Like, he finally comes to his senses, and he goes, you know what? Like, my dad's servants eat better than this. I may not be a son anymore because I totally disrespected him, but I'm going to go back and beg him to be a servant in his house because I'll at least eat better then. So he goes, and he's making his way home, and he's rehearsed this whole speech. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He says, when the father saw him a far way off, he girds up his loins, and he runs to him, and he embraces him. And he says, bring out my robe, put my ring on him, put my best sandals on his feet, kill the fattened calf. We're having a party. Strike up the band, everybody. My son was dead, and now he's alive. This radical, the this, this son didn't even get his speech out. He starts and the father just ignores him. He's like, he just keeps going, read it, it's amazing. But he had an older brother. And how did that brother respond when the younger sinful son came home? I'm glad you asked. Look at Luke chapter 15. Chapter 15, verses 25 through 32 says this. Now his older son was in the field, working like a good boy. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. There's a party going on. This is unusual. What's happening? And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother's come home and your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound like Jonah? God pours out his compassion on the Ninevites, and Jonah was furious. The father pours out his compassion on the younger, on the prodigal son. The older brother comes and goes, what is this? What is this garbage, this music and dancing that I hear? Oh, you killed the fatted calf for him? His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, all these years I've served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this brother, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. That's the end of that story, too. It ends with the same cliffhanger. The same question left hanging in the air. Will the older brother have compassion? Will he join the party? Will he go in and embrace his brother and go, I love you, and aren't we screwed up, but don't we have an amazing dad? 
See, you, you're screwed up because, because you went and sinned in all the obvious ways and, and you thought you were no longer worthy to be called a son because you did wrong things as if you were worthy when you were doing the right things. And I thought that I had earned everything because I did all the right things. And so I was actually doing good things for wrong reasons. You know you can obey God with wrong motives to put God into your debt. Like now he owes you something. And that's why you get ticked off when something bad happens in your life and you go, but I've been praying and I've been reading my Bible and I've been going to church and I've been tithing and I've been serving because you weren't doing it out of joyful relationship. You were doing it as a transaction. Oh, it's down payments on now God owes me. It was not a reveling in the grace that God has for you. Interesting thing here. Oh, I don't have time to teach on this. But he says, the older son says, your son wasted your inheritance. And watch what the father says. He says, son, you're always with me. All that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead. The older son said, your son. The father said, your brother. Your brother. Can we look at those who've hurt us? Those we feel we have the most reason to be angry and unforgiving towards and say, my brother, Father, forgive them. Pour out your grace. To actually long to see the grace and mercy and compassion of God poured out. So these stories end with the same cliffhanger. Will the older brother have compassion on the younger brother? Will Jonah have compassion on the Ninevites? I believe these stories are left open-ended and unfinished on purpose to provoke a response from us. I think it's left open-ended to thrust the question back into our laps. Will I have compassion? Will I walk in the grace of God towards people? Will I walk with God's mercy? We must answer and respond to this story personally. Everything in Jonah has been building to this. Will I have compassion on the lost? Will I have compassion on the sinful, on those I feel I have the most reason to be angry with, on brothers and sisters who have harmed me and slandered me and hurt me and broken me? Will I have grace and mercy the same way God has grace and mercy on me for rebelling against him he still pours out his mercy. For betraying him, for denying him, for disobeying him, and he still pours out his grace and his mercy. Will I be like Jesus is the question. Will I love like Jesus?
Or will I be like the older brother? Or will I continue to be like Jonah, sitting and watching the city, waiting for destruction? Angry to see mercy. What's crazy is we know what happened to the prodigal son. He's in the party. And we know what happened to Nineveh, at least in this moment. God spared them. We don't know what happened to the older brother, and we don't know what happened to Jonah. At least not here. Tonight, how will our hearts respond to the message of God's radical compassion for all people and his great grace for those who repent and trust in him? So let me just quickly, because I have no time's up, let me just attempt just a, a broad summary, okay? Some of the major themes we've seen in this book, and we hinted at it, not even hinted at it, we really just pushed it out already earlier, so I don't need to spend a ton of time on this, but we see from the book of Jonah, these four short chapters, that God is all-powerful. We serve the almighty God, omnipotent, the God who sends storms and fish and worms and plants and scorching winds and rescue and salvation and mercy and grace, the God who controls the wind and the waves, the God who has the, 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 the elements at his fingertips. God is all-powerful. So listen, God's arm is not short. God, it's not, God is not limited, you see? Okay, when we see the wickedness in the world, let's not be overwhelmed and go, well, it's like God can't do something about it. Of course he can, and of course, he, of course he's going to. Read the whole Bible. We know how this ends. God is all-powerful, so let's not limit or diminish our view of God. Let's keep, him, let's keep him out of the box where he belongs. Vastly, wildly able to do things beyond our, our understanding. All-powerful God. We also see that God is a sending God, and we are a sent people. The question is, are we going? And what I mean by that is, it's not that everybody is called to international missions or everybody's called to be, whatever, pounding the pavement and handing out tracts. And that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying everybody has an assignment from God. Everybody has a mission. Everybody has specific gifts and callings. Okay, well, it's different. It says there's diversity in the body of Christ. You, you look different than me. I look different than you. We have these different things. But what is it that God is calling me to do? We know what God called Jonah to do. What is God calling you to do? There's no passive spectatorship in the body of Christ. We're all supposed to hands-on, engaged, involved in the work of the gospel. But let me just press real quick for those who may have a little bit of a, a missional impulse. And, I w and maybe those who wouldn't, who maybe God would want you to. <laughs> let me just say this. If God is a sending God and we are a sent people, the fact that there are still more than 1.5 billion unreached and unengaged people groups on the planet, people on the planet, should stir something in our hearts to perhaps, maybe, pray, give, or go. 1.5 billion people have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are, there are unsaved people in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces. We have been sent to proclaim the good news of the gospel. 
We see in this book that God is filled with compassion for all people. I think the key verse for the entire book is chapter 4, verse 2. It says God is, Jonah's saying, I knew, this, I knew this about you, God. I knew that you are gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing calamity. I think that's the key verse for the whole book. This is the heart of our God. Gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, one who relents and longs to pour out his mercy. Yeah, so listen, I know I say this all the time, but we got to get these both. We have to understand that our God is great and powerful. He's not to be played with. He's not to be played with. He's not some dude. You can disrespect and act like whatever. Like God is all powerful. And he's great, he's great, he's great. And he's so good. He's so good. I've said this a million times, but and if we get one of those and not both of those, we're going to have a skewed view of God. If I think God's just good, but he's not great, then I have no fear of God. I have no sense that there's going to be any kind of consequence for sin or rebellion. I'm just going to, oh, God's just good. He'll just let it slide. This is the gospel you hear being preached all over the place today, by the way. Oh, God is good. God is love. He just, it's no big deal. He'll just pat you on the tush and tell you, keep on how you are. You're good. How you, he just loves you just like you are. You're just, a little, you're just a little snowflake. You're just a little like unique, beautiful little snowflake, and God just wants to, Jesus loves you. He just exists to just like serve you. God's just, God's just good. No, God is good. And if you, but if you don't understand that he's great, and he's holy and just, and, and they're not, he's not this at sometimes and this at other times, he's all the time, all of them, important. But some of you maybe think God is just this, oh God is just great, you've lost the goodness of God. And so what you become is either condemned and burdened and buried alive by condemnation because God's just great but he's not good and not merciful to me. Or you think you're, you think you're hitting home runs for God, you're checking all the right boxes and, and God is just all, you know, great and not good and so what you become is a Pharisee. What you become is somebody who's looking at others and going your sin is horrific. I'm good with God but your sin is horrific. Because your view is of God that's great and God that's not good towards them. So we have to hold both of these all the time. God is great and God is good. He's so great and he's so good. True all the time of God. He's great and powerful and also good and compassionate. His extravagant, relentless grace is available for all people for prodigal sons and older brothers, for sinful cities and rebellious prophets, for those who break his law and those who think that by keeping it, they're earning their salvation, for the blatantly sinful and the religiously self-righteous for us all. If we will repent and trust in him, he is longing to pour out his grace on us and through us to others. I'm going to have the band come up so that I'll stop talking. If we can have the worship team come up. God is so gracious. He's longing to pour out his mercy on all people. And so I, I, I feel like God would have us line our prayers up with that truth. That when I, who, I don't know who it is for you. Maybe you're good right now. Maybe you're in a season where you're just, everything is just hunky-dory and, you know, everything's just awesome sauce between you and everybody. 
okay? But maybe you're, like so many others, we're in a season where you're having struggles and drama with some people. Maybe for good, maybe you're angry with for good reason, okay? My, my challenge, actually not even my challenge, I believe the challenge of the word tonight to us is to begin to form our hearts like the heart of Christ. To begin to hit our knees in prayer for those who have done bad to us. Scripture says, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Bless those who slander you and have done all kinds of evil against you falsely for my name's sake, he said. So that we would hear tonight the challenge of the word of God to find that place with God and hit our knees and pour out genuine tears saying, God, I'm sorry that my heart has been hardened. Give me a soft heart because I don't have it on my own. And begin to cry out to God and pray for God to pour out in abundance his mercy and grace on those who you've struggled with, who I've struggled with. God calling you to pray for? Maybe you need to make a phone call. Maybe you need to send an email. Maybe you need to write a letter. Maybe you just need to spend some time in prayer before God, letting him chip away at your hearts. Whatever it is, it's so important that we would respond to his word.